Hey everyone, welcome to It's in the Experience, the Association for Experiential Education's original podcast. I'm Sherry Bagley, the Executive Director and your host for the great conversation ahead. Today's episode brings together Chris Ortiz and Steve Smith, two regulars at AEE conferences who are just getting to know each other. Chris Ortiz is the Associate Director for the Leadership Development Team and the Program Director for Team Development at Shavers Creek Environmental Center. He is also an instructor for the Recreation Parks and Tourism Management Department at Penn State University. He facilitates and teaches team development, leadership, and group dynamics experiences with schools and university groups, corporations, and sports teams that strengthen relationships, motivate growth, and develop leaders. He regularly presents internationally at conferences where he shares innovative programming and activity ideas. Chris co-authored the second edition of the High Five Guide, Challenge Course Operating Procedures for the Thinking Practitioner, as well as the Ubuntu Activity Guide. He has held leadership roles in both the Association for Experiential Education and the Association for Challenge Course Technology. You can usually find Chris at the local climbing gym or exploring trails by bike or boot. Our next guest, Steve Smith, has worked in the outdoor industry for over 30 years in the field, in the office, in the boardroom, and in national conference leadership roles, specializing in program leadership, risk management, and staff training. He's the founder of Experiential Consulting, LLC, and the author of Beneficial Risks, a risk management textbook being used by colleges and universities across North America. His career has included leadership roles with national organizations, including Outward Bound and the Student Conservation Association, as well as the Wilderness Risk Management Conference. He has a master's degree in teaching English, along with years of university-level teaching experience, and earned a Professional and Human Resources PHR certification from the Society for Human Resources Management, all of which help him view outdoor education through a variety of educational and administrative lenses. And speaking of lenses, Steve is a gifted nature photographer who spends lots of time outdoors in the Pacific Northwest. Steve and Chris, welcome. Very excited. Chris, I don't know if you've ever seen Steve's photography, but it's pretty amazing. It's incredible what he captures. Love that. I'd love to see it if I have it. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't expecting that, but that's really nice. (laughs) Yeah, that's my own recreational therapy outside. So I wanted to start off with an animal question today as the little icebreaker for you all to get to know each other a little better and for our audience to hear something about you. But what animal do you most identify with? So I I think about this actually a lot. So here at Shavers Creek, many of us have nature names, outdoor school names, summer camp names, uh, nature names. And I've had mine since the 90s and it's mongoose, but it's been shortened over the years to just goose. So I used to think that was it, but I actually, I think a red-tailed hawk would be my better answer. For me, I think it's a little bit connected to the work that I do. I think of the red-tailed hawk. I used to work with birds of prey at a previous career as well. And I think the role I have as a facilitator, you're always watching the group and looking, but trying not to be intrusive to the experience. And if you know anything about hawks, red-tailed hawks are everywhere. And if you just look and open your eyes, you'll see one but most people don't notice them. And so I feel like they're there, they're watching, but they're also really good at blending in for most folks who aren't looking for them. So maybe that red-tailed hawk, that sort of aware vision, that sort of connects for me, I think. Nice. I did see that your nature name was Mongoose. Yeah. Wondering if that's what you were going to (laughs) say. 
<laughs> Steve, what about you? Building on yours, Chris, if you ever in a Hollywood movie see an eagle on the screen, the call that they always insert for an eagle is actually a red-tailed hawk call. That's reachy call that is a lot more, I guess, charismatic or likable or dramatic than the actual call of a bald eagle, which sounds chirpy and odd. It doesn't look like it should be coming from that animal. Sounds like a big chicken. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> for me, Sherry, great question. Living in the Pacific Northwest, I do. I associate with orcas, killer whales. They are such incredibly remarkable, charismatic, incredible mammals. And they have things that they're good at that human beings would benefit a lot from being better at, specifically a lobe in their brain that we don't have as human beings, which is attuned towards teamwork and compassion and putting the group's needs ahead of the orca's individual needs. And I have with my own eyes seen starving Southern resident orcas who are suffering because the salmon that they rely on, that species of salmon, the Chinook salmon, has really been depleted because of overfishing and things like that. But I have personally seen orcas catching salmon and feeding them to pregnant female orcas, putting the group's needs out of their own individual needs. Wow. It's a really inspiring symbol for me of teamwork and things that human beings would benefit from learning from the animal world. And your company logo. And my company logo. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. I didn't know that about the orca. Though. I love that. Not interesting. That is fascinating. Yeah. Definitely, we could use a little more of that. All right. Next question. You have your own late night talk show. Who do you invite as your first guest? And I'm going to say they have to be living. Have to be living. Darn. I was going to say Jim Morrison. Really? <laughs> I don't think he, he's probably not living. <laughs> Chris, do you have one off the top of your head? I would probably do the natural thing, which most people would expect me to do, and I would invite Marshawn Lynch, former Seattle Seahawk running back, one of the most incredible, funny, community-minded, charismatic, unique people. And Marshawn was on the Bear Grylls survival, outdoor survival show. Oh, wow. Howling and camping in the wilderness. And I would love to talk with Marshawn about his experience in the wilderness. That'd be fascinating. I have a connection to hockey. When I played when I was young to, to doing some work with teams in my professional career. And I think Wayne Gretzky would be really fascinating to talk to. Oh. Who had an amazing career, started very young, very prolific, but also just to talk to him a little bit about his leadership capacity, which I don't feel like is necessarily a focus of a lot of the talk about him. A lot of it's focused on all the records that he set, his prowess on the ice, but I'd be really curious. I, I actually don't know much about his presence in the locker room, but it'd be really interesting to pick his brain a little bit about that, I think. Yeah, this is a good late night talk show. Yeah. <laughs> the AE late night. I like the idea. We get Marshawn and... Gretzky together and who knows what would come from that. Yeah. That could be, they seem like they'd be very intriguing to put in the same room. Very different personalities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. One more icebreaker question. If you could learn one new professional skill, what would it be? It's tough to say like a finite, we're looking just for a finite skill. That's one thing I, I considered going to law school at one point and I also considered being a therapist at one point in my life. And my life took a different direction and I went into 
classroom English teaching and then experiential education. But I wonder like the direction my life would have gone and how I might have ended up meeting some of the same people if I was a recreation law attorney or if I was in the wilderness therapy world, how similar my life might be to what it now is and how different it might be as well. So it's just a, some really interesting alternate universes that haven't happened yet. Maybe they will at some point. Interesting. Yeah. There's definitely a big need for therapy in our society these days. I think that's continuing to be a growing field for good or for bad, but I think there's a lot of need there. That'd be, I think I selfishly would go with general contractor home construction. Yeah. <laughs> I, need, I need that, Chris. Right. <laughs> I need to help for some, some little issues we've had out here. Yeah. I, I feel throughout my young career, I would do these very hard, intense residential type programming and I'd almost get myself to a burnout place and I would pause and I would do construction or I did some furniture building in sort of these hiatus moments between outdoor ed facilities. But it always was just a stopgap of a couple of months or a year at most. And I've always felt if I could pick up that skill to be a little bit more self-sufficient and, oh, I want that kind of a cabinet. Great. I will build that and be able to create that space that have that creative outlet through woodworking and through construction stuff, I think would be great. So many homes that I've owned over the years, I don't have owned a whole bunch of homes, but when I've done projects in my house and I pull back one thing and I discover all this other stuff underneath that needs to be fixed, I get, oh, I clearly have overstepped my abilities here. So I think that would be great. This story of home ownership, you start that one project that's supposed to take two to three hours and that turns into another project, which turns into a bigger project, which turns into taking out a whole wall. Peel this panel back and you think it's just going to be a simple thing. Oh, wow. Look at that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've definitely been there. I think that idea of having like that gratification of completing something yes. is so important for our brains, especially in a lot of the work we do. You have participants or students in there with you for a small amount of time, you don't always see how they're using the skill you've taught them or something like that. Your work is good. It's sometimes really nice to have that, oh, look, I built that thing and there it is and it's finished and I've completed it. It's good. So yes, there was definitely something therapeutic about that when I was taking those breaks in my career and doing that construction work, which is like that over there, I built that. I can look at that and I can touch that and I can go home at the end of the day knowing I completed a thing. Whereas I rarely have that sense of completion like you said, it's a, a step along the way, and then we don't always see the end result. But we have need for that, as Sherry's saying. So it is interesting to say, it's a really insightful question because it invites us to wonder, for those of us who are experiential educators or have that kind of deferred, we're deferring the satisfaction of a, that sense of completion because of the students going on and doing things with the rest of their lives from the time that we spent together. And I'm wondering how outdoor educators or people in our field, experiential educators might find practical ways to meet that need, like Chris is saying. So that's just a really insightful question, Sherry. Yeah. It's interesting how many people in experiential ed have other creative outlets and do other projects that are completely, not necessarily completely different, but they just, they fill that need somehow of seeing that. And I'm always jealous of facilitators or programs that last like multiple years where you get to see the participants advance and change. I'm always like, oh, that would be so great amazing to see. But yeah, thanks for breaking the ice a little bit there and answering those questions. 
This podcast is for learning about experiential education journeys, how people got to where they are, that kind of thing. So I wonder, what was your first brush with experiential education? It's funny that you ask, because my first brush with experiential education, where I knew it by name, wasn't until college. But then when I learned about what experiential education was, I had realized that I actually had first experienced it in seventh grade. In seventh grade in my school district in Eastern Pennsylvania, we all would go to an outdoor school kind of an experience. It was run by the teachers. They took us to the Pocono Environmental Education Center up in the Poconos. And we would stay there for, I think we stayed there for three days, four days, maybe. And everything was run by the teachers that we had in school. So I remember the health teacher did a team building lesson and, and introduced, I did a nitro crossing and a trolleys exercise back then. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know I was doing team building at the time. I was just doing this stuff with the health teacher. But then we did archery with the typing teacher and stream study with the science teacher. Like we just went around. And it wasn't until I got to college and I was bouncing around the system trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life that I saw what experiential education, team building side of it was. I was like, I did this. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. It was definitely this light bulb of, oh my gosh, I did do this stuff before. It was like in seventh grade and I didn't have that recollection or that understanding of what I was going through back then. And it was not a part of my life through any other point of high school or any teams I was involved in or clubs or groups I was a part of until I got to college and then got introduced to this and then had that reflection moment. I just want to go back to archery with the typing teacher. That's yeah, right? <laughs> it's funny that you say that because I was like, of that experience, I only remember my typing teacher to doing archery and my health teacher doing team building. I, I don't really remember what any of the other teachers were doing with us. <laughs> oh, I have some similarities in my answer to that. So informally, uh, I grew up in Virginia and I grew up around boats on the Chesapeake Bay and the James River. And so I was out on boats or water skiing or learning how to drive boats at this very young age. And so informally, I had this real life exposure to decision making and teamwork and real consequences, very young, surprisingly young. And Chris, I would say formally, I wasn't introduced to experiential education until college. And through my college outdoor club, I was a Virginia kid going to college in Florida. And we were canoeing with the alligators and making trips in 15 passenger vans up to North Carolina to this summer camp where we would go climbing and hiking and mountain biking and all this stuff. And I was hooked, but I also learned that I had this deep fear of heights which I discovered climbing those low angle friction slabs in North Carolina back in the day when you would tie your own harness with webbing and get belayed by your peers who were first time belayers using figure eights and old static lines. And we were on such a low angle slab, I probably couldn't have fallen off if I tried, but I was terrified of climbing at heights. And I ended up taking a Knowles course after college because I wanted to confront my fear of heights and I wanted to, to not be governed by that fear. And I was startled and shocked to learn that I not only was able to enjoy climbing, but I had some affinity for it. Mm -hmm. And that led me to this career working as an outdoor educator and a long career at places like Outward Bound, teaching mountaineering and climbing all over the world. And mountaineering just became this huge part of my life for several decades. And it all started on the low angle friction slabs of Western North Carolina, where I learned that I had this fear of heights. I guess I'm like a 
experimental education poster child for the very <laughs> risk taking, right? And overcoming yes. there's more in you than you think, and all the classic Kurt Hahn kind of stuff. Really, I was fortunate that I was able to learn that through those experiences and then through the structured Knowles course that I took in my 20s. I love it. So, Steve, you both Knowles and Outward Bound, that's crossing a line, isn't it? That I thought either you were a Knowles person or Outward Bound person. I didn't know I didn't know you could combine the two. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And then there's the Wilderness Risk Management Conference that I've been involved with for a while. And that's actually a combined conference that is co-sponsored by Knowles, Outward Bound, and the Student Conservation Association. So I've worked at or been a student at all three of those organizations, which have profoundly positively influenced my life. And what's nice about risk management is you're right. Those organizations might compete with each other for students or for grants or for staff or whatever, but safety is where we should not compete with each other and where we need to come together and, and share our lessons learned and be humble and collaborate. And it is such a, like the AEE conference, it is such a wonderful place where people who might be from competing schools or programs come together in a community and can humbly help advance the whole field. Yeah, it's lovely when you can bring those great organizations together. Yeah, and share all that amazing information. What's lighting your fire in your work right now? What's got you excited in experiential education? For me, I've actually been really spending the last four or five years studying and learning about the evolution of occupational safety outside of experiential education, looking at industrial workplace settings and trying to learn like where have we grown and where have we gone over the last hundred years or so. I'm talking about things like multi-trillion dollar industries like aerospace, NASA, healthcare, oil and gas, industries like that, and shamelessly stealing models and concepts and things that we've learned through research and through those, in many cases, complex and highly hazardous workplaces, firefighting, looking at things like that. And then like, how can we take those models and those concepts and the things we've learned in those industries and then adapt them and apply them to the summer camps and the schools and the outdoor programs and experiential wilderness therapy programs and conservation cores and all the different kinds of programs that I'm fortunate enough to work with. And that has been such a rich and interesting journey for me. It's like my own little grad school program, self-directed grad school study <laughs> that I'm trying to learn about safety science in other industries. And then how can we adapt that for outdoor programs and experiential education programs? So that's been like, I'm just getting, so you can tell, I just get excited talking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's so much rich stuff there. Um, and why not? Why shouldn't we be getting and learning from, we don't need to wait for tragedies to learn and we don't need to make things up for ourselves that have been learned the hard way through some really, the space shuttle challenger blows up. Can we learn some things from that story uh, about organizational culture and how we might apply those lessons to the programs that we run in so many Three Mile Island and so many events from the larger world that we live in? So I get really jazzed about learning that stuff and figuring out how to adapt it. That's really fascinating. I actually thought of this question on two arenas. There's one that's similar to what Steve just talked about, which is the area which I'm most curious about right now, which for me, a lot of my work is around group dynamics and whether that's helping teams navigate the group dynamics or 
helping emerging leaders understand how that group dynamic affects their decisions and their work. And for me, within that group dynamics world is behavior styles. And there's so many of these models, whether it be strengths finders or disc profile or lenses or color, there's so many of them out there. They all seemingly stack on top of one another very nicely and fit. And so I am intrigued at the moment to dig back and find some source information of where these are coming from and why do they all look alike. And they're just seemingly marketed to their own tools and, and metrics and things like that. But for me, I've been using that behavior style model to think about crafting experiences. When I think about group dynamics and how we craft experiences for people and to get the behavior that we're hoping from either it be our staff group, our student group, or whatever that might be, are we hitting people's needs? And potentially those behavior styles and the way we interact and engage with groups are lenses through which we can create experiences. And so do we have, for example, somebody who's a really a director-driven style of interacting with groups? Are we giving them enough challenges? Somebody who is more of a, a relationship-building mentality, are we creating enough connections so that they feel like they have a place and are comfortable? If somebody who's very data-driven and who loves strategic thinking, are we giving them enough structure and understanding of roles and responsibilities so that they can understand? So just looking at that through that lens of how we craft experiences for me, for students in the classroom at the university, but also in our programming and our design. When I'm working with business leaders, are they creating that in their staff culture so that all these people feel like they have a home there? So that's a subject matter area that has been intriguing me and I've been doing workshops and playing around with that. In the moment, it's a new semester and I have new students. And so that always ignites some excitement for me. I've gotten the chance to do some travel related to the work, which has opened up some horizons for me to be able to see new places through this work. And so I think those new horizons, whether it be a new set of students that just came on, I get to meet them and go on a 15-week journey with them at the university or going to see a new place. Those are the things that are exciting me right now in the moment not from a subject matter that, that has got me intrigued. That's really cool how both of you are digging into kind of the origins of safety and risk management for you, Steve, and, and Chris, for you, those behavioral personality models. Yeah. And at some point you're like, stop just digesting what people are giving you. And you're like, wait, no, let's figure out where this came from. You're like, at that point in your careers where you're able to ask the deeper questions, I think that's awesome. So with that, what do you think our industry, the experiential education industry still needs? What are we missing? This is one I feel like I could have been saying this 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and maybe saying it 10 years from now. That mainstream recognition for me is one of those areas feel like those of us who live in this experiential education world see the value and the benefit of those things. And when we introduce it to new people, whether it be a teacher bringing their classroom out to an experience for the first time or a, a participant going on a trip or an experience for that first, they start, their eyes light up, they get it. They understand that there's this other way that we can reach people. And there's other ways that we can learn and craft experiences that allow people to grow and develop. And I want more people to recognize that value and have this not be a niche organizational or programmatic design, but have it be what everybody is doing. And I think we're getting there. I think we're seeing a lot of good positive growth in certain areas, but I want that to keep going. It's interesting to look at countries or cultures where experiential education is more integrated, more widespread and accepted. And 
even funded by people's taxes and by the government. And it's just normal for all the seventh graders to go do a, do X, whatever that might be. And how, what an uphill battle in North America that has been. I think you're onto something there, Chris, with more wide, I think you started with more widespread proliferation or acceptance. Yeah, I think to your point, I just got back and I know AE International just was in Singapore. I just got back from Singapore and understanding that ev their goal of every student going through an Outward Bound program is like... And, and not just every student in, not just Singaporean students, but every student that goes to a school in Singapore. It's yeah. amazing that Outward Bound program. It's so integrated. And then everybody on that island has had the same experience. And you could meet somebody at a job or you could meet somebody on the street and you could talk about that experience because they've all done it. It's it's really a neat, a neat concept and they're integrating into their universities. And yeah. Obviously we have a scale issue with the United States, but yeah. it is encouraging when you can see a group of people who can embrace what we do and the way we do things. It's the value of that. There's a glimmer of hope when you start to see those things. Yeah. There's a strange little metaphor that occurred to me just listening to you, Chris. So back in my former life, I was an English teacher at a university and there was a movement going on, which was called writing across the curriculum. And the idea was that writing is a mode of learning and it should not just happen in English classes, but you can write in your history class, in your math class, and you can do writing assignments in your geology class. And, and the idea of getting teachers across the disciplines to use writing as a mode of learning, not just standardized tests and not just whatever, Scantron or whatever they used back in the day, I'm dating myself, but using essay writing and free writing and creative writing and all these different places, not just English. And so what I'm hearing you calling for, Chris, is, and correct me if I'm mishearing you, but the idea that experiential education can be proliferated across many different disciplines and places and that's a great thing. And it's fun to see programs that have tried to do that, integrate geology into the trips where the kids are going down the river and actually learning about the geology of the canyon and not just the white water. <laughs> you right. know, like, how can we get spiritual education and the positives from that more integrated across programs yeah. and into society? And that's something that occurred to me hearing you talk. Yeah. And here in my university, even in my department, I know that there's some of us that have very experiential approaches to the way we deliver the material. And our classes get highly rated and loved by the students and they see the value in that educational experience. And yeah, I, I would love to have more of our folks be able to integrate that and find ways to integrate that into that when we have a, some really unique cross-disciplinary things going on here at the university, which I hope those continue to grow. Yeah. I have two answers to your question about what the industry still needs, Sherry. I mentioned the research that I'm doing around lessons learned from safety science outside of experiential education. And historically, safety management has been from the top down. The boss tells the workers what they need to do, what the rules are. And when things go wrong, the workers are usually blamed for not following the rules that were given to them to begin with. This traditional view sees people as problems, sees people as the safety problems that we're trying to manage. And the strategy there is to tell people what they need to do to be safe. So that's the old school OSHA style, top-down approach to safety. The really refreshing and the really emerging school of thought around safety management 
is seeing people as solutions to our safety problems and asking them, rather than telling them what you need to do to be safe, asking them what they need to be safe. So it lends itself beautifully to things like an organization's efforts around diversity and inclusion and emotional, not just physical safety. And it's this positive asset-based approach to risk management that fits so well with our outdoor and experiential education community who are not risk-averse people to begin with. (laughs) (laughs) And so instead of seeing that as risk management, the thing I've started to think about is risk optimization. How are we using risks in these beneficial ways? How are we utilizing the risks that are inherent in these activities and in the places that we're going and designing the program to see people as solutions and not just to see people as problems. <laughs> so it's a, it, it really lends itself nicely to the field that we work in. It, it parallels a little bit from the leadership development perspective of the, the shift in positive psychology to go away from what, what's wrong with you and how can we fix you to thinking about what's right with you and how can we lean into that. It's where the whole strengths models have been coming from and that trend over the last several years of, of focusing on strengths. I love to hear it in the risk management world as well as in the leadership development world. I think that's a really positive, great way, no pun intended, but a real positive, great way for that to be moving. It's an excellent connection you're making. And can we, instead of your doctor's goal being avoiding sickness, how about if it's pursuing health, (laughs) right? Right. How about our goal with safety, not just being about avoiding injuries and accidents, but pursuing success in the workplace at a place where people can be psychologically and physically safe and speak up when they have concerns and ask for what they need and learn from events that inevitably do occur and things like that. It's just a very positive asset-based approach to risk management that I've been getting really excited about learning how other industries have been pursuing this and trying to think about ways that we can really practically actualize that in the different programs. Of course, I work with organizations ranging from summer camps for little kids all the way up to wilderness therapy, where the participants might actually want to harm themselves in some of those instances. So it's not a cookie cutter, one size fits all approach to any of that. And in some cases, people might not just be solutions to your safety problems, but they could be the source of safety problems as well. It gets tricky depending on the population and the environment and the activity, but it's this refreshing, this is a very refreshing, positive approach to risk management that I think has really resonated well with the organizations that we've been doing this with. That's my answers. That's the first one. I've got another one. (laughs) Go, do it. In terms of what does the industry still need, I think we need to continue to be open to hearing what the current generation of students really needs and to have the flexibility and the humility to let go of our outdated models and approaches that may have served us in the past, but they just don't serve us as well. They may not fit the future. So here's an example. Ropes courses are things that I will say traditionally have been designed by the privileged and for the privileged. And they've been built with this assumption that people don't have enough challenge in their real lives. So we need to synthetically build some tower, create some way that we're going to introduce adversity into someone's life because they don't have enough in their real life. And furthermore, the students need to bring themselves up to the challenge that the ropes course presents to them. So that's the traditional mindset. And a new view of this, for example, could be that 
maybe some of the students need to be challenged in that way. Maybe some of the students don't have enough adversity or need to find a way to be scared in their lives. But at the same time, others might just need to be respected and supported and loved by their peers or by properly belayed, <laughs> or maybe even shown that it's okay to set your own limits and that you don't need to go all the way to the top just because someone said that you do or whatever it might be. So building that trauma-informed approach into the program design from the beginning, and I loved how you were saying that earlier, Chris, you were connecting together some of those different holistic parts of things. To me, that's where the industry has been going and we just need to really keep going and thinking about that our old models and the way that we've done it in the past may not be what the students of the future or even the staff of the future need. Yeah, I think that's a really fascinating element there because I, I do think I've seen a trend of in the facilitation world of ropes courses to, and chalice course programming to be looking at how do we really validate choice within our programming so that people are authentically showing up as themselves and not assuming a role. I think that's a really great one. And, and, and working with college students who I was just having this conversation with my college students the other day that they get dinged for not being determined or persevering, that they always call mom and dad to fix the thing. And I was like, these are students who have persevered through some of the worst eras of our lives with COVID and the ever-changing landscape of their high school careers. Now they're in college. And I think they've shown nothing but perseverance on a certain level. It just looks different than the perseverance of the generations before. So it's not recognized as such, but they are struggling and dealing with just as much, if not more. So to your point, our old models and our old perceptions of what is a challenge and what are the needs of these current, my current college students is different than it was even five years ago. It's a different student who's sitting in front of me and they are no less tenacious or, or persevere through anything. It's just that it looks different in their world and the things that they need and the support that they need is just different. So how do we modify and adjust and those sorts of things? And yeah. And maybe that's why I do have a positive reaction to my class, which is interactive and a social component that I think some of them were craving. It, it's been a little bit, we're, we're on the other side of that COVID conversation, but it, it is still impactful and, and it's a, a deep-seated need now. I love that. And how much richer our facilitation becomes when we start integrating all these different pieces that those cultural shifts that we want to see and, and meeting people where they're at and bringing in the trauma-informed and bringing in the different learning styles, different personalities, all all the things. Just if you think about training a new staff member how to facilitate, <laughs> it's a lot. But I think as we learn these things as an industry, it just becomes part of how we train our facilitators. That I think helps lead to the legitimacy of our industry, right? If we're meeting people where they're at, if we're keeping them safe psychologically and physically, if we are listening to them, it just makes us all better. So bringing all these elements in is incredible. Totally agree, Sherry. And I think it applies to the staff as well, the folks leading the programs. I think there's more of a recognition that they are human beings too. You can <laughs> yeah. Health challenges and pre-existing relationships with trauma and with the outdoors and with different environments that require organizations not just to manage that piece the same way that they always have. And to think about the staffing challenges that some slices of our industry are really going through and what are the adjustments that need to be made in order to 
meet the staff where they're at. I just think we're going through this remarkable existential time where the things that worked in the past will not be the same as what will work in the future. And there's remarkable change and growth and evolution. And it's inspiring to see the organizations that are grappling with that, finding their way through that. And it's heartbreaking to see organizations that are closing their doors. are not able to to make it work. And I'm just, I really think we're at this existential place right now. We're also at the place in the conversation we're at over 40 minutes. Which <laughs> has been so good. It's been so good. I haven't gotten to, I haven't gotten to all the questions. Apologies. But we'll do one last one and then we'll end it. <laughs> but the last question I wanted to ask, and this is, uh, I think could be its own whole podcast, but it's about, what are those special aha moments that you've seen a participant have or, or one that you yourself has had with participants? But in our industry, we have those moments where a participant understands or comes to a new learning of themselves or their community. And it's just so, it's heartwarming. It's amazing. So I wondered if you all would like to share one of those moments. I have one that is clear for me. And I will try to hold it together as I share this story. It's quite an emotional story, really. About 20 years ago, I was leading parent-child backpacking programs here in Washington State in the North Cascades. And this was a new program type where we were bringing parents and kids together to go through an experience together. And mostly it was young parents and young kids, and they all had similar levels of fitness and reasons for being there and all that. But in this one program, we had a, he was like 60 or 65 year old state Supreme Court judge who learned on this course to see value for the very first time in his 16 year old son. And it was a backpacking trip in the North Cascades. And the family makeup was such that there were two kids who were much older, who were intentionally brought into the world. And then the 16 year old who had come along later in life unexpectedly when the father was very deep in his career as a Supreme Court judge. And he never really, admittedly, but in his own words, he never really had time for the boy. Here they were on this parent-child backpacking trip together. And it was breathtaking to watch as they would roll into camp. And we had reasonably appropriate itineraries on hiking distances for the group composition, but it's still the North Cascades and it's rigorous and just hiking through the forest with heavy backpacks and all that. So when they would roll into camp, the old man who had been a judge his whole life, right? Not an athlete. He would just collapse into his camp chair and the boy would come and take off his boots and bring him food and go down to the lake and get water and bring him water. And the old man was barely making it like physically, but he was really tenacious and he was mentally tough, obviously. And he never talked about giving up or anything like that. And day after day, it was the story of the boy taking care of the father who he had never really known. Mm. And it's such an emotional story. So he took care of the old man in ways that the father himself had never done for the child. And that very last night of the course, when we're that last night in the field, the father tearfully spilled to the group how much he needed and appreciated getting to know his son and how much he needed his support and how he didn't deserve it, but that he wanted to be there for him as a father going forward from this. He saw him for the first time. And it was really a coming of age story, not for the young man, but for the father. 
And it was probably my most profound and memorable and moving experiential education story that I could remember. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I, when I think about this question, we talked about this earlier, but a bit of the work, we rarely get to see those aha moments sometimes because we're doing the work and we're not sure what the impact or the outcome will be. And that person leaves our program, leaves our class, leaves our whatever, and there may not necessarily always be that recognizable or stated thing. And I've been here at Penn State now for eight years or so. And, and one of the exercises I've embedded into my class is at the very near the end of the semester, I asked them all to do some personal visioning, some vision statements for themselves, thinking about what's important to them, what they value. Most of my students are pretty early in their careers at college, they're first and second year students. Occasionally, I'll get a third or a fourth year student who's filling a gap in their schedule or whatever that might be, or, or a hole in their a mate, a minor that they picked up or something like that. But I always do this vision work at the end. And it's something that I put a lot of emphasis on in the class and the way I present it. And I'm trying to be very thoughtful and have them think, you may not know what you want to do, but you probably know what you value. You probably know what you believe in. And hopefully that's pointing you in a direction. And I hope that you're not getting a career in recreation because you like to ski or you like to golf or you like to do a thing. That's all important, but I hope that you're trying to make an impact in the world in a positive way. And let's see if we can craft this mission for yourself so that you can make decisions as you're interviewing with companies and organizations to gain experience and they're grilling you. You should also be interviewing them to find out if they are going to help you continue your journey towards this vision you have for yourself. So I'm trying to give them this opportunity to go through this exercise. They have to do it. They have to get points for their class. And I understand they might be just doing this class to check a box in their schedule. And they may be doing the assignment just to get the points for the class, that sort of thing. But you don't always know. And when I first started doing this exercise, I would create little business cards for them. They would decorate and write their vision statement on these little business cards. And then I would laminate them and give them to them in our last class. In the last couple of years, those have become parts of e-portfolios that they create online. And maybe I wouldn't have this story if we had been doing that from the beginning. But when I created those little cards, I had a few students and this happened more than once. And you don't know if you're making an impact or you're getting through or why they're doing things. But I had one student stop me on the sidewalk a year and a half after they were in my class and say, wait, I want to show you something. And they reached into their backpack and pulled out their vision card. They still carried it with them because it did get through. And I've had other folks send me pictures. They were visiting their son and they went to his desk and they saw it and they knew about it. And so they sent me a picture like, look, he's got it on his desk. I love that there those moments when you realize, oh, wait, I am getting a little bit of a peek as to whether or not we made progress, we got through and sort of those things. So when those happened, I think those were a bit of my aha. Wow. Okay. Sometimes we do get through and sometimes we do make an impact. And hopefully that has a bit of a ripple going out because that person's vision statement for themselves was guiding them towards an impact they wanted to have in the world. The great story, Chris, and it makes me think about just the cycle of experiential education and that values clarifying opportunity you gave them. And then the chance to have this tangible physical thing that they bring forward to remind them about referring back to that in the future and using those values. And it's just a really powerful, concrete story. The best stories are the ones where you hear it and you're like, oh, 
that makes sense. I could do that, <laughs> but yeah. it takes someone visionary like Chris to come up with that. So great job. Oh, that's great. Appreciate that. Thank you both so much for sharing. Yeah, I always find those stories so get a little verklempt thinking about it. A little it brings tears to my eyes. It'd be the subtitle of this episode, verklempt. It's a great word. <laughs> this brings us to the hard part of the conversation, ending it. Thank yeah. you so much, Chris and Steve, for joining us today. It was great talking with you and hearing your stories. And I hope for everyone listening that uh, you can join us each month to hear more stories and experiences from voices in the experiential education community. And it's really awesome if you all can subscribe to the podcast. You can do so on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For additional information, resources, and a calendar of events, including all of our upcoming regional conferences, visit the Association for Experiential Education online at aee.org. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jerry. Thank you very much.